Good morning and welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. This is your host, Brad Ferlin in historic Waterbury, Vermont. Uh, we have a great show coming up this morning. We're going to be talking with Betsy Bishop, who's the longtime president of the Vermont Chamber of Commerce. Uh, she's going to help us with a lot of the Montpelier stuff that uh, is sometimes hard to understand, and she's been doing it for a long time. Uh, later in the show, I've got Representative Scott Beck and Representative Casey Toof. Uh, Representative Beck will help us a little bit with education funding, uh, which is certainly going to be an impact on Vermonters. And uh, Casey Toof will reflect also a little bit on the governor's state of the state address. Uh, so that'll, that'll be good. Um, the weekend for me, uh, a little heavier on the farming stuff. I knew the snow was coming, so... I'm bringing bales in. I have two, a storage of, uh, bales of hay and I knew that I needed to get, uh, I put about 30 more bales into the barn where our sheep are. And then I did get our sheep out to pasture, even though there's not much for them to eat out there. I bring some hay out to, to them, but I also threw a Christmas tree in with them and they just devour Christmas trees. Sheep love them. So, uh, that was fun. This morning, of course, it's an early radio day. I went out into the barn early. I bring warm water, uh, to them and it's like their morning tea. In the summer, they don't get it, but in the winter, I bring warm water and, uh, put hay out and, uh, fed the dogs and off to Waterbury and here we are. Uh, so I want to welcome in studio Betsy Bishop, uh, Vermont Chamber President. Welcome, Betsy. Thank you, Brad. Thank you for having me. It's been a few years since I've had to lug bales and uh, bring out hot tea to the animals. But uh, uh, for years when I was in the governor's office, I used to have to do that before going to work. We had horses and, uh, you know, using the hammer to break the ice in the buckets in the morning and then putting the hot water in. I totally understand. <laughs> totally. And mucking a little bit, too. Oh, I, I actually enjoyed mucking it. It when Sometimes when you're working in the legislature, and you have to do that as a balance. You could actually see your progress. Okay, this is now clean and done. <laughs> Which sometimes at the at the state house, I'm not always feeling like I've been accomplished every single day. <laughs> well, maybe we've created a new term for. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, well, I didn't know that about. Um, so you, you long time animal horses in your world. Oh, yeah. I grew up with them. Um, my dad certainly instilled that in me uh, early on, and uh, I passed that uh, equine gene on to my, my daughter, so uh, all through her years, and she's continued that, so absolutely. Yeah, that's great. We, my daughter and I are doing the sheep farming, mm. and, and uh, we have done the whole you know, breeding and lambing, and of course, together we go out with our pitchforks and, and muck the barn, and you it's it's a certain amount of character to do that for hour after hour to clean out a barn but it's so rewarding like you said you you can see what you've done it's a nice balance with sort of the heady policy work as well yeah yeah and for us um sheep are there's a real serenity to them you know being out in the meadow and watching them and what they do and i think it's a metaphor for kind of how i I would like my life to be in general, the, the calmness of that. Uh, so we were talking off air. You, you know, I, I always like to look at role models and people who guide us in our journey. And, uh, you, you're 
eyes lit up uh, for a particular reason. So, you know, it's interesting you asked, does the, you know, acorn, acorn fall far from the tree or, uh, you know, does it roll away fast? And, you know, I grew up in central Vermont. I grew up in Middlesex. I went to U32 high school. And, you know, I, I was one of those kids that was just like, oh, my God, I can't wait to get out of here. And uh, so I did. <laughs> I left and uh, went to college in Ohio. And after that, I lived in China for a year teaching English at an economics university. Uh, but when I came back, I, I didn't have a vocation quite yet. And uh, it was the year my mom was running for lieutenant governor. And so I helped her do that. Uh, all through my high school years, my mom uh, was in the legislature. And so uh, I found a home pretty quickly. And I found that uh, this is something that I wanted to do. And, you know, my dad was a business guy, uh, grew up, uh, you know, with understanding real estate, buying and selling real estate. And so those two things really combined to sort of forge my, my foundation um, you know, when I started lobbying at the State House in uh, 1994 was my first year, and, uh, you know, several people said to me, well, well, it's not like you've been gone that long. <laughs> you used to get off the bus and come to your mother's quote-unquote office and wait for her to leave and take you home from, from work. So it's a very familiar territory for me. Yeah, for sure. I didn't know any of that. Uh, Interesting. I'll tell you a Waterbury story. Uh, my, at uh, one point, my mom had Waterbury in her legislative district. And at the time, I was 15 years old and was anxious to get my driver's license. And, uh, you know, I had a, uh, you have your permit. And so she was campaigning door to door and I was driving her and we had to go up Blush Hill and we had a standard. And that's the year that I learned, that was the time that I learned how how to do a hill start. You know, we'd stop at every house. She'd get out. She'd go in with her pamphlets. I'd pull up the emergency brake. She'd get back in the car. And, and by the time we got to the top of the hill, it was a little smoother. <laughs> well, it's amazing because it can go two ways. You can smell a clutch or you can do it right, right? <laughs> uh, Blush Hill is no uh, – that's uh, – a, quite an endeavor. Uh, so very interesting. So she, um, w what, what was the influences on your mom? Uh, not everybody has the fortitude to be a legislator and. I'm not sure I can go back that far, Brad. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but I think, uh, you know, she started uh, in the school board and uh, really being concerned about community issues and wanting to serve. And that sort of public service is part of something that I grew up with, is that you sort of give back that you do for others. And um, I feel like in my role at the Vermont Chamber of Commerce that while it's not an elected position, I've been working in policy to advance policy for, for 30 years in a variety of different ways, both in the private sector and in state government. Including uh, working for our good friend, Governor Douglas. Absolutely. And yeah. what was your role with uh, the governor's office? Um, I helped write his uh, economic plan that he presented during uh, his campaign. I did that sort of as a volunteer and not really thinking that <laughs> there was a path after that. Uh, so I was surprised the day after the election. I was not surprised that he won, but after that, that uh, he asked me to join his team. And uh, um, there's a great story there. <laughs> but um, 
It, it was, he asked me to join his team as deputy chief of staff. Uh, I did that as the key policy legislative liaison for six years, uh, then moved over to be the commissioner of economic development. And at that time, the governor asked me to condense the economic development and housing departments, which I did. So became the commissioner of both those departments. At that time, they were combined. It's really interesting how our journey goes, right? And and what we learn, even though we don't always know what we're learning, you you just get immersed in things in Vermont. And that's, I think that's the beauty of Vermont. I think that's certainly the beauty of policymaking in Vermont is that, you know, I love the notion of the citizen legislature. I love the notion that they only meet for four or five or <laughs> I've been around when they met for six months. Um, but for part time, because they bring their lives with them to the state house and their experiences. Um, but they're forced to listen to people with different experiences as part of their public service. Um, and, you know, everybody who works in and around the State House, they each have a background and they each have a story. And it's the elected officials, you know, are sort of the the focus, but all the people around that are contributing as well. And I feel like I've been really fortunate to be able to contribute on behalf of businesses over the years. Oh, definitely. Uh, with all the background stuff and really you know, bringing a farm view too doesn't hurt. I'm not sure I have a farm view, okay. <laughs> Brad. I, I think back in the day I cleaned a few stalls. Okay. <laughs> I'm not quite sure I would call that a farm view, but I think there's a work ethic view. Yeah. And I think the concept of getting things done and having to, you know, feeling, you know, I certainly still to this day do my share of, you know, chainsawing and doing what I have to do around our our small slice of heaven, um, you just get things done. And I think that e- that effort and that work ethic is at the core of so many of us that, that serve. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because, I, you know, I, I stack th- four cords of wood um, every fall, and people would probably consider that sort of like, ugh, kind of work. I love it. I mean, we used to do eight, wow. um, and I got to a point where I did feel like it was kind of that. What was that word you just used? <laughs> that ooh kind of work. Yeah, um, we we still stack a few, but not quite that much. Yeah. So we're talking with uh, Betsy Bishop, the president of Vermont Chamber of Commerce. Uh, so big week in Montpelier, Betsy. Uh, one of the highlights of early January in the state house is the governor's state of the state address. Uh, and tell us about that and, and some of the things that you heard from the governor uh, this week. You know, uh, the governor has been pretty consistent in his, um, in his elements that he's had over the years from, from the beginning, from 2016. And, uh, he really talks about affordability, puts that up front. And, um, what's interesting is over his tenure, uh, we're still seeing that be the primary issue. And so when you think about affordability and whether things have changed under his tenure, and yet we're still talking about that, 
um, I think that's something that we all are looking at. And when I think about affordability for businesses, I think about the cost of doing businesses, doing business. Um, over, over the last couple of years between the pandemic and then, uh, you know, the, the run up of inflation, um, the supply chain tightening, uh, we heard last fall sort of like, oh my goodness, we're coming into a recession. We haven't been there, fortunately. Um, we saw the legislature override the governor and pass a hundred million dollar payroll tax last year. That hasn't hit Vermonters yet. That's going to start July 1st. Um, that was passed last May and it is January and we're already hearing about more taxes that are going to be passed and we haven't even felt the impact of that big tax yet. So we, um, we're concerned about that, uh, whether Vermont is affordable for people and for businesses so that they can hire more people so that they can do more things. Um, I think those are, those are areas that we would agree with the governor on in his state of the state. I think, um, he talked about housing quite a bit too, and that is a key component of, um, our legislative agenda this year. And really, you know, I've heard from both the speaker and the pro tem, um, several other leaders in the legislature that housing is a priority. And yet, when you look at the agenda for the first week, there wasn't much discussion about this big priority. Um, and when we look at housing, I see, um, I see it in several buckets. We have to think about, um, uh, what are we doing for our unsheltered folks? And there's a big effort in the legislature uh, last year or the previous year. This year, there's some focus on that. What are we doing for folks who need help paying for housing that are working but uh, need help with affordable housing? And then what do you do with that sort of third tier that those of us who are working, maybe – Maybe, um, you know, people who are plumbers and teachers and uh, manufacturing workers and restaurant workers, where did they find their housing? And they might not be in those first two buckets of being homeless or needing affordable housing. They just need a house that they want to pay for that or, or rent uh, at a reasonable rate. Very, very little focus on that. And that doesn't cost the state anything. That is just allowing that to be built and looking at the regulations and being able to, to do that. So those are some of the things that places that we agreed with what the governor uh, was talking about in his state of the state. So you, you said something about uh, listening to the governor's state of the state, but then you were looking at agenda. Are you talking about the legislative agenda and what they're putting for, forward and how that agrees or disagrees with the governor's words? Yeah, I think um, I think what I'm looking for is when folks say to me either privately or publicly in a news story that housing is my number one priority, Yeah, I would expect the agendas of the committees to match that. Right. And yet they're not. Not yet. Yeah. Now, it was just week one. Yeah. There, there's a lot of, lot of pomp and circumstance that has right. to happen in week one. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we're off to a bad start, but we're watching. We're watching to make sure that this third bucket, what some people call workforce housing or middle income housing, that that gets as much priority as all the other things. If it truly is a priority of legislative leadership, I know it's a priority of the Vermont Chamber. Yeah. I know it's a priority of the governor. 
we need to see that in action. Right. So the you talked about pomp and circumstance and and this we see this when the presidents start as well. The governor comes into the state house, everybody's there, everybody's on this applauding sort of behavior, right? Uh it there's some congeniality if that's the word. Uh that's just a traditional respect kind of thing or I think so. Um, I think over the years I've seen um, that day, the state of the state and the state of the budget, um, sort of change. Uh, that there was a respect for the office, regardless of who was in it, in the governor's office, that uh, you politely clapped, uh, you know, at the appropriate times, regardless if you, you know, were, you know, in 100% agreement. When you think about the state of the state, there was, um, you know, it, it's not detailed policy work. It's it's a vision. Um, th- there was that, you know, standing and respecting the office and respecting the peers. And I, I think we still see some of that over the years. And I would say uh, five or six or seven years I've seen sort of odd behavior by all all sides, you know, um, you know, really like deep clapping and hooting and hollering like you're almost at a sports game or mm. sort of much more. I'm going to sit down and be quiet and not clap. So, like, it, it's ridiculous, I think, in, in my opinion. It's one day. It's one hour. It's a vision for, for the governor yeah. and then the legislature does their work. Um, and so I have this deep respect for the offices and for the roles that our legislators play. They're elected to serve. I believe in the citizen legislature and I believe that these people should come. The governor, when I say these people, the governor, his appointees, as well as um, every legislator, your job is to come and to listen to differing opinions people who differ from you so that you can come up with a balanced approach for all of Vermont, not just for you. And I've seen that shift a little bit. Hmm, Interesting. So I want to read something from the governor's address that caught my eye. He, he, He really passed the baton, I would say, and I'm quoting the governor. Now, I'm a realist, and I know you have a supermajority. You've proven the final budget and the growing burdens of taxes, fees, and other policy-driven costs is in your hands. Is is that an unusual thing for him just to come right out and say, hey, you know? Yes. Uh, yes, it is. Bold, I guess. Or, or, I, I, or what? Is he yeah. just... <laughs> Um, you know, it's interesting what's going on, right? I had a legislator say to me Thursday uh, uh, in sort of a flip way, well, I have to go now because the governor is going to be speaking. And after all, you know, he's the most popular governor in the country. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't said nicely. Yeah. Um, and uh, but he is. Yeah. He gets elected repeatedly by a, by a wide margin by the very same people who are electing legislators that he may disagree with. And that is part of the process, folks. That is the process. People are going to disagree. Um, and it is how you work together to find that common ground. And I feel like, uh, in some, in some respects, we're really just sort of drawing sides. Yeah. It's interesting you say that, uh, I worked with uh, Governor Salmon, who was 
you know, elected back in 1972. He ran a three-month campaign, got elected governor. He had been a legislator, of course. But he would talk a lot about the old days, so to speak, when Democrats and Republicans really looked, you know, they could disagree, but they would look at common good at the end of the day and do their best to help Vermonters. Uh, I think that's what people are still doing. I do think that that is what the governor is doing. I do think that is what the legislators are doing. I just think that there's a disagreement over uh, over that. So, um, you know, what uh, what my perspective is versus what your perspective is. Yeah. Uh, so we have a, uh, a caller on the line, uh, Chris from Waterbury. Welcome to the show. Yes, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm coming back from Essex this morning listening to your conversation, and I wanted to throw this question out to you. Um, with the growing, I'll call it discourse, for lack of a better term, it, at the state house, you're, you're speaking about the governor's uh, popular, popularity and whatnot. Uh, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day in reference to the legislative body, the supermajority, and the governor. Um, what boggles my mind, and the gentleman I was speaking to uh, agreed with me, why does the people, the voters of the state of Vermont, continue to elect Bill Scott into office and then turn around and put themselves in a chokehold by electing a supermajority and basically handcuffing themselves to any reasonable uh, ability to uh, compromise uh, as we move forward? I think things are being overrid more and more, uh, and in my opinion, uh, if we keep it up, the the, the, the current supermajority is going to put us all in the poorhouse, and I'll, uh, thanks for taking my question, and I'll, I'll listen. Chris, thank you. Yeah, I think um, it's a good point, uh, but these people are electing people that they know. When you get uh, the legislator closer to, um, closer to the public, they know those people. The other answer to that is there's not a lot of competi- competition in some of the state house races. Uh, so I think those two things combine. Betsy, a lot of uh, the political brochures you see say we have to attract um, people to Vermont, uh, grow our population. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what we have and, and why that is either beneficial or problematic? I think there's a lot of confusion over this issue. We, I think Vermonters understand and know completely about um, our demographics, that we're an aging state, that we have a declining population. I think the confusion comes in as along came the pandemic and all of this attention paid to people flocking to Vermont. And there was some flocking to Vermont. But when you start to look at the numbers, um, it's really not a lot of people, enough people to make a difference. We have about 350,000 people out of our 650,000 in the workforce. Um, we have 20,000 jobs open um, and not enough people to fill those jobs. So we absolutely have to attract more people. Uh, our um, our foundation, the Vermont Futures Project, has put out a number uh, and suggests that we strive to hit 802,000 people in Vermont over the next 15 years. It's 150,000 more people than we have now. How are we going to do that? So every time we're in the legislature lobbying on a policy, 
we're talking about this issue about attracting more people to become Vermonters. We absolutely need them. Um, and part of the work that the Futures Project does is travel around the state and encourage people to think about wel- welcoming more people into their towns. That's not always a popular opinion in, in rural, uh, rural Vermont. But who is going to take care of all of us as we age? Who is going to, you know, uh, wait on us when we go out to, to a restaurant? Who is going to serve in the legislature? Who's going to be an EMT? Who's going to be on the local volunteer fire department? We need people. We absolutely need people. And we need Vermonters to understand that. And, you know, when, as a policy issue, I think about, like, what could our elected leaders do to help attract more people. Well, when we're working on issues, um, take the child care issue last year, for an instance. Um, while that came with a really hefty price tag that we were not inclined to support, the concept of finding more child care spots is, is really in need. Um, and many times the legislators said, people are going to flock to Vermont because of this child care bill. Mm. Our response was not if they don't know about it. Now, in Vermont, they may know about it. But how do you get people flocking to Vermont or staying in Vermont if we don't tell them? We absolutely need to elevate our achievements. The state should be proud of what they're passing because they're passing it. They're overriding the governor's veto, sometimes uh, to do it on their own, or sometimes the legislature and the governor do agree. Um, and if we're passing things that are good policy, that are advancing the Vermont economy, we should be creating a marketing campaign that says come to Vermont because we are addressing child care, we're addressing housing, we're addressing climate change. But we don't do that. Mm-hmm. We want to continue that thinking, but I also want to welcome Forbes uh, from Corinth to the show. Welcome this morning, Forbes. Good morning. Great subject. Um, I'm having trouble with math. Maybe, maybe she can help me or you can. But uh, looking at our state structure, um, here's a governor with, uh, what, 64, 65 percent overall approval uh, and nationwide even. Yet we turn around and we, uh, the populace, elects people who are diametrically and politically totally opposed against him and anything he wants to uh, try to straighten out or, or make some headway with. I, I don't understand the math. Good question, Forbes, and I'm going to turn it. I'm not a good mathematician myself, so turn that over to Betsy. Well, I, I promised myself a very, very long time ago never to do math in public because uh, <laughs> it can be embarrassing. But you don't, in this case, I don't, I think it's more perception than it is math. Yes, the governor is quite popular, you know, uh, in this state. He is elected almost in every single town. I haven't looked at the numbers most recently, but you're, you're absolutely right about the, the percentages. So what happens in towns? And that is when you think about your, your state senators are being elected by a county and your state representatives are being elected mostly by individual towns or, or small groups of, of towns. Um, and what happens is you get to know that person. That person, that legislator is somebody you know. And while you might disagree with them on um, some of the issues, you go to the voting booth and you check off that person's name because oftentimes it's the only person on the ballot or 
in other times you've never heard of the other person. Um, so that that's sort of what we're seeing in Vermont. And this is the second call this morning about this. It's going to make me go <laughs> do actually do the math and look at, you know, how many seats are unchallenged or or um, or that. But I think if you look at the percentages of um, the people who are elected to the state house, you will see that they, too, are elected by wide margins by the districts that they represent. So the question really is, like, for the people of Vermont, they're voting for divided government. And I think they're voting to encourage the governor and the legislature to work together and not just to have two sides and one wins and one doesn't. And you know, the um, overrides that we hear so much about often get the news attention. But, you know, remember, there's so many other things that do get passed that aren't in contention. And so they do work together on some issues as well. And you talked, uh, Betsy, about sort of how we communicate out of state about think good things that are happening like uh, child care. But in state, really, Vermonters are you know if they're if they're doing their job and they're raising their family and they're trying to make ends meet and stuff they maybe don't have the political attention to things as much is that part of it is we we just aren't aware of sort of what goes on or I think that's right I think we're humans we're busy you know running our lives I, I I've I've got to go to work I've got to do my work yeah so for eight hours of whatever that day is I'm busy thinking about the work that I'm doing and then I have my family and my kids and you know, you want me to read a, a long-winded bill on? Yeah. <laughs> like we, I, I'm, I often say to my team, nobody reads anymore. So let's stop writing so much. <laughs> um, you know, people are catching the headlines, and and so how do you take a complex issue between the governor and the legislature and and break that down? So I think we all have to become better communicators. Yeah. Uh- Totally agree. We have another call. Uh, Jamie from Bethel, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. Thanks for my call. Um, and, uh, Brad, I worked with you a little bit there toward the end of my time at Vermont.gov years ago um, and, uh, you know, enjoyed working with your with uh, finance and Jim Reardon and so many other folks, three governors and whatnot. And my question is, um, you know, about about labels, you know, Vermonters, have always understood balance um, in general, politically, and I think that's what we've seen for a lot of years now. So, you know, we've got a supermajority of Democrats and a, and a Republican governor, great. But the labels of conservative and liberal, you know, over the last 20 years, I wonder if you guys want to comment on the fact that they've changed. You know, 20 years ago, I said, you know, I was very critical of the Bush-Cheney administration in Iraq. He said, there's nothing conservative about what they're doing. You know, I mean, John McCain at the time said, you know, they're spending money like drunken sailors. And in the last three, four years, the term liberal <clears throat> doesn't really apply to most of the Democrats that I know anymore. Um, you know, they're they're not encouraging open thought and um, and really sort of deep thinking and not very liberal in the way that I that I remember you know, growing up as kind of a liberal, um, you know, Spalding Gray said, like a good liberal, I question everything, but yet nobody does anymore. And, and, uh, and they just kind of, there's a lot of, uh, enmity, you know, going between back and forth between the parties. And I, I just wanted to hear what you thought about that. Great. Jamie, thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Betsy. 
I'm not a big fan of labels, um, and yet we are uh, in a societal place, not just Vermont, but in the in the country where everybody wants to make sure either they are labeled or they are labeling somebody else. Um, I, I feel like these labels are just another term for judgment. I'm going to judge you with this label. I'm going to put this label on you. Um, and I think most of us are much more complex than that. I think that, you know, when you, when you vote, you, you vote for the, <laughs> I, I grew up with this notion of you vote with somebody who you agree with mostly. Um, I've rarely had the luxury of voting for somebody I agree with on every single issue. And, and I'm one of those people who do read, you know, I, I know where people stand. That's my, my job, but you have to do the best with what you have. I just think that now it's a shortcut. It's a shortcut to like, if I'm going to vote, uh, okay, there's a liberal, there's a conservative. I want, what label do I want? I want to identify with this. Very few people are going deeper than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is how we're shortcutting everything. You think about when Twitter came out so long ago and it was, you know, 140 characters. And the whole world was like, how am I going to put all my thoughts into 140 characters? Well, they did it. And that sort of shortening of everything has really become how why we put labels on everything. Um, and we're starting to see it seep into businesses. We're starting to see it in the food that you serve or the people that you hire. We just need to recognize that. We're all part of the same ecosystem, the same economic system, um, and there has to be a respect for people who don't think like you, for respect for people who don't look like you, uh, who don't come from what you come from. We, we have to do that. And sort of looping that back to, you know, growing the Vermont population and growing the Vermont economy, we have to be welcoming of all those people. The Vermont Chamber has been a big supporter of the Declaration of Inclusion um, effort to try to get the declaration passed by all the towns in Vermont, and I think we're up to 160 towns or so. Um, and the notion is that we want to be able to say to people from away and within, frankly, that we are a welcoming state. Yes, we have work to do, but we, we need to be inclusive of all people. And I would say not just people, but their thoughts, too. Well said. Uh, we're talking with Betsy Bishop, president of the Vermont Chamber of Commerce. Betsy, I want to return a little bit. Um, we, you're talking about housing being important and, um, you know, how we can, if, if we're going to grow our population, you know, people have to have a place to live and all that. One of the, you know, the trigger words of the world is Act 250, and it's been that way for a long, long time. It seems intuitive to make some reform, yet we don't seem to see it. Or will we? I'm not going to handicap that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I I do think that we're trying to make progress. I have seen more discussions happening in the last couple of years uh, around this topic that are positive. Particularly this summer, um, Megan Sullivan, uh, who's with on my team, spent uh, most of her summer. I think there was three or four different study committees and task forces around not just Act 250, but about housing and designated areas and those types of things. And 
you know, we got to a really good place with some of the environmental groups and having some conversations about how are we going to build housing? How are we going to get to this issue? We need 80,000 more housing units in Vermont, 80,000. So when somebody finally breaks through the process after a couple of years and millions of dollars and builds 350 houses, we celebrate that. We have press conferences and ribbon cuttings and a lot of people. And then on the other side, we have sort of like people going, oh, my God, 350 houses. Oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? Um, we need 80,000 houses. This is a crisis. We need to do something. And it is not just a crisis on the, on the, uh, uh homeless and, or on the affordable, uh, end. It is, if you were to look at where are you willing to build house, housing, let's think about those designated areas. Let's change those. Let's think about a tiered system that says we want housing where. And let that be built regardless of, um, you know, certainly there has to be regulations, but perhaps a streamlined or, or uh, even a total exemption in those particular areas. The private sector would build that. You don't need $100 million for that uh, from state government. Use that money for the other two buckets of affordable housing and homeless, homeless uh, sheltering. When you think about that, that is the conversation that we need to have. That is the conversation that is not being had as much. The first two buckets get a lot of conversation. The third one, not so much. It costs, it doesn't, it doesn't have to cost the state a dime. So if you want to fix housing in this state and by May 15th when they adjourn, did we pass a bill that impacted private sector building? That's the question for us. Yeah, very interesting. That's 80,000. That's a lot of homes, but it, it could make a huge difference. We have another caller, uh, Renee uh, from East Montpelier, if I'm saying your name correctly. You are. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I want to start by appreciating um, what your guest had to say about uh, inc- being inclusive of people that were very complex and also being inclusive and thoughtful about different thoughts and ideas. And I wanted to specifically address some of the numbers that Betsy Bishop is throwing out in terms of housing, which have come from the Vermont Futures Project. Um, And, um, uh, yes, everything is debatable about how many houses we do need. I agree that we have a crisis um, with increasing homelessness, and we have a crisis with the unaffordability of Vermont. And I would say that what we have is unaffordability crisis, which, which impacts both home ownership and renters. And um, uh, what Betsy Bishop is um, describing is a small fraction of what Vermont's mainstream narrative has been for a number of years. But there are many parts of the conversation that have been taking place behind the scenes that are not reported on and that are very important. It's part of being inclusive. And so without wanting to go on for very long, um, I do just want to say that some of the information that's being omitted 
is that we also have a climate change crisis and a crisis of extreme weather. And our leaders, both uh, in public and private uh, organizations, business people of all kinds, need to have the conversation about population and about affordable housing in the context of cutting Vermont's carbon footprint. And I'll end it there, but I I would love for Vermonters to be having a much larger public conversation about the role of our ecosystems in relationship to population and also, um, you know, how to accommodate all points of view without having um, very well-funded organizations promoting uh, singular narratives that promote a particular agenda. Democracy is a very messy art. And... um, it requires us to be having more and more conversations like the one you're having today. So I appreciate that WDEV still takes listeners' calls. And I look forward to more conversations like this in the future. Um, Act 250 has preserved Vermont's environment and ecosystems, but it has not protected water quality, which is a very important issue so to think that we're going to put a lot more housing in the 12 to 15 towns that um, overflow their wastewater treatment plants and their contaminated stormwater directly into our rivers. Yeah. Uh, and it rains. That's a mistake. And yet the legislature and the public narrative still is about this um, concept of, quote, unquote, smart growth and, quote, unquote, designated areas. We need to evolve our thinking around that. And Act 250 is the only permitting process that creates a democratic process that allows the public who have particularized interests. Renee, I I need to cut you off now. We're running out of time, Renee, but thank you so much for the call and your your very good points. And thank you, Renee. I think your point, you know, with a lot of the sort of loaded uh, terminology you used, we are at the table. We do believe in the debate, and we do believe that we need to be voice our opinions just uh, like others. So I, I appreciate that, and I think that there's a lot of issues, whether that's climate change or water quality, um, places for people to live, places for people to age. Those are all the difficult discussions. So, Betsy, very uh, quickly, we've got a little bit of time here. Um, You have a Vermont Economic Conference coming up January 30th at the Davis Center. Yeah. So we put on a Vermont Economic Conference every year. We invite uh, the public to come. A lot of business people come. It's a great way to start off your year. Uh, I call it the nerd fast. If the, if you're into charts and graphs and economic trend <laughs> analysis, this is the conference for you. You can find more information at vtchamber.com uh, and you can register there. But we have speakers coming, uh, national economists, uh, state economists, and we have a panel on um, how to hire and um, utilize uh, 
uh, new Vermonters in your workforce. And the chamber will be recognizing Citizen of the Year uh, later in the year? Right. That nomination will be coming out. So if you know somebody who has given uh, uh, their life, if you will, their service to Vermont, certainly uh, look for that nomination. Awesome. Betsy, I want to thank you so much. We have about 20 seconds for being our guest. We'll have you back. There's a lot more to talk about and uh, appreciate your time and every all your service to Vermont. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is Brad Furlan, Vermont Viewpoint. We'll be back with Casey Toof uh, right after this, uh, a WDEV.